last week we began a short study of John Wesley's Three Simple Rules. And we started by establishing their origin and examining a little bit of the rules of conduct that Wesley tried to establish in the communities of Methodists that he was responsible for. The first rule was do no harm, and we talked quite a bit about what it means to do no harm. And basically what Wesley would have us understand is, is that all the general rules are taken from the basic uh, commandment of Christ that uh, we should trust God and that we should love one another with all our hearts. And this was the basic premise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he thought, well, how do we tell people to do that in a practical way in a fallen world full of all kinds of strange and ungodly things? Now, Wesley, being a good uh, 18th century nobleman, you might say, he wasn't literally a nobleman, but he was from the noble classes. Well, he, he went on to say that there were even specific ways that you could do no harm. He said, uh, you can do no harm by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced. That's kind of broad, isn't it? The harm that is most generally practiced. Well, in the passage you just heard, that might have been sort of suggested in the way that uh, Peter described Jesus as going around doing good as though it were something unusual. Something that stood apart. So maybe what Wesley was saying to us is, is to do no harm, you got to try not to do what everybody else is doing. But he went further than that, and now here is where our toes are going to hurt. So curl them up. Here it comes. He says, to do no harm, one must cease taking the name of God in vain. Now, I'm not going to extrapolate each one of these, but taking the name of God in vain, I think, was the essence of the message last week. Basically, it doesn't mean using dirty words. It doesn't mean using God's name in a sentence that would not be an appropriate use of God's name. While that is offensive, it's not what their point, the driving home point is, is that taking the name of God in vain means that you do things in the name of God, but your heart isn't devoted to God. That's a kind of vanity that God prohibits. It's right out of the commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, don't do or say or be anything in the name of God unless it's really in the name of God. He goes on to say that you're doing harm if you profane the day of the Lord by doing ordinary work or by buying or selling. Uh-oh. You're taking... Uh, you're taking great risk if you dabble in drunkenness, slave-holding, fighting, quarreling, brawling, brother going to law with brother, returning evil for evil, or railing for railing's sake. Using many words when buying or selling. Boy, think about that for a minute. 
Where's, where's George? Uh, <laughs> what do those contracts look like now when you're selling or buying a car anymore, right? <laughs> you may be doing harm, says Wesley, if you're buying or selling goods that have not paid duty. In other words, he thought you were doing harm if you didn't pay your taxes. He didn't live in 21st century America. But I think what he was saying is that if you're not paying your taxes, you're not helping to support the common good. He says you're doing harm if you give or take things on usury, that is, you charge unlawful interest. You're doing harm if you're uncharitable, unprofitable in your conversation, particularly if you're speaking evil of magistrates and ministers. Uh-oh. Have you been online lately? How many of your Christian brothers and sisters have posted things on Facebook that were uh, unprofitable? Maybe even evil speak against ministers and magistrates or those who govern us. He says that you're doing harm if you don't treat others the way you'd want them to treat you. You're doing harm if you do what you know is not for the glory of God. See rule one. He says you might be doing harm if you're putting on gold or costly apparel. Okay. Some of these are harder than others, aren't they? You're doing harm if you take such diversions that cannot be used in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, that's a broad one that's scary. Here's one, Courtney, you're going to like. He says you're doing harm if you're singing those songs or reading those books which do not tend to the knowledge and love of God. In fact, there's legend in Wesleyan lore that uh, John's brother, Charles, was a prolific hymn writer, as you may know. But many of the tunes for his hymns were popular songs of the day that he just put better words to. So I wonder how we could uh, take Uptown Funk and turn it into a really great hymn. We'll talk about that. <laughs> he says you're doing harm if you're engaged in a, a kind of softness and needless self-indulgence. Or laying up treasure on earth or borrowing without any probability of paying or taking up goods without probability of paying for them. Isn't that basically what a lot of us do with our credit cards? We take up goods with a credit card and then we maybe pay for it, maybe we don't. All of these things, he says, are expected of those people who call themselves Methodists. Now, relax. I was just saying yesterday to Paul as we were conversing during some downtime that, that there have been times in my ministry career when I've had colleagues say to me, Sinkhorn, you're just an idealist. One of these days you'll grow out of it. 
And I have said, I hope not. Because Wesley and those who got what he was saying understood that we are idealists by nature because sanctification in effect is reaching for and aspiring to an ideal. Saying I'm not done till I'm dead and then I'm in the presence of God and I keep going from there. That's the gist of Wesley's journey toward perfect love that was like that of Christ. So what he says to us is, is you're not done till you're dead. And then you're not done. Meaning that we will always try to be better. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we might even be somewhat successful. And so sure, some of those rules that he gave you for doing no harm, they're pretty tough. But then again, some of them might have seemed tougher a few years ago than they seem to you now. And so as people who are seeking entire sanctification, or in other words, seeking this Christian perfection, it doesn't mean that we actually believe that we'll make it in this lifetime, but Wesley thought some people could. I'm pretty sure it's a little late for me, but I'm going to keep working towards that. Now, today's topic is the second of the three simple rules, which is to do good. And just like do no harm, it's sort of so simple, it's scary, because just what is good anyway? Well, if you were to observe some of the radical lifestyle changes that were described by Wesley in what I just shared with you, you'd probably be seen by a lot of people in your community as pretty different and somewhat better than average, and therefore you could be considered good. But there's this wonderful story in Scripture that I want to draw upon right now. Because it speaks to the whole idea of what is good. Peter said in the passage that Paul just shared with you that Jesus was known for the good that he did. And I find that peculiar because you could say a lot of things about Jesus, but just to say that he did good and to assume that that somehow stands on its own is peculiar. Is good that unusual in his experience so that Peter would say, oh, you knew, didn't you, that he wasn't just your average guy because he was good? <laughs> Think about that for a second. What is good? In this story that I alluded to, Jesus is greeted in a certain place that is recorded, by the way, in the three synoptic Gospels. That's those three that are kind of like each other. They run uh, a similar storyline to each other, the first three of the Gospels. Each one of them records the story of a certain young man who was wealthy and had a little bit of authority in the community who came to Jesus and, and immediately he greets Jesus by saying, Good teacher! And I think this is hilarious because in that moment he really thought he was in charge of the conversation that was about to happen and Jesus completely lets the air out of his tires by saying, Why do you call me good? That's not what this guy was expecting. You know? Why do you call me good? And then he proceeds to intercept this guy 
and completely shoot down whatever it was this fellow was intending to talk to him about by saying, only God is good. He said, no one is good except for God, and frankly, if you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And, and he starts to explain that only God is good, but you can keep the commandments at least, can't you? And, and, and then this, old, this young man is trying to regain his composure and take the conversation back, and he says, I've done all of those things, Jesus. Jesus looks at him with compassion. With compassion. And he says, I know you have. I, I know you're a good guy. But you lack one thing. Sell all your possessions. I know how wealthy you are. I know what you got, he says. Sell all your possessions and follow me. And of course, the young man walks away. He's like, he's very rich and he doesn't want to sell all his possessions and follow Jesus. He likes being good if it means keeping the commandments and being respected by people in the community. But if Jesus is suggesting that goodness involves a complete surrender of all of that social equity, then he's not really interested. If somebody asked you this morning, and actually someone did ask me, and I caught myself going into a sort of circular thought process, someone says to you, so how are you doing today? And you say, I'm good. Or you just say, good. Now, the grammar cops in the community will immediately jump on that and say, you should have said, you're well, you're doing well. But in this particular context, we're going to defy the grammar cops and go with Jesus. Because goodness isn't about what you do. It's about who you are. It's about how you think. And this is what Wesley was really driving at when he said to do good. Is, is to make it more than a grammatical issue. Make it about how the heart condition is. Jesus had compassion on that rich young man because he saw a guy who really was a nice fella, who, who probably donated to a number of the charities in the community, who was probably kind to people and lived the commandments in an honorable way and was in all respects a good citizen and a good member of the local synagogue. But, but what he was driving at was, is until it's not about you, it's not good. It's just good deeds. You remember in The Wizard of Oz, you know, when he was explaining to, I think it was the Tin Man, right? He's explaining to the Tin Man that, that there are certain people in the community, they're called good deed doers. <laughs> and and uh, Jesus is saying the same thing, basically, saying, you know, good deed doers are very lovable and wonderful people. And they can sleep confidently at night knowing that they did more good than harm. But, but if, to, if to really be good, to really do good is to have your mind changed. To have 
the deeds serve as a reflection of a change of heart and mind. There's where the rubber meets the road. Wesley said in his general rules, by doing good, by being in every kind merciful after their own power as they have opportunity, doing good of every possible sort and as far as possible to all men. And then he gives a list, and I think I'll just let you look that up in the notes, but it's kind of remarkable. Because these lists in Methodist tradition became the sort of stuff that tore up communities more than it served them. All of a sudden, we were condemning the one who hadn't mastered drink just yet, or condemning the one who hadn't perfected the art of a sale with few words, let's say, and in the same way whose good deeds still seem to leave them in a pretty good way, even if they had donated generously. And in, and in the church, we started letting the bullet points of Wesley's rules turn into cultural issues. And this is the way it is with church, you see. We have a habit of condemning one another and not recognizing that the heart of the matter is your heart. And it's your heart towards Jesus. He challenged that rich young man to give up his wealth, not because the wealth was such a terrible thing, but because it would mean that he could then be free to follow Jesus. And there was the problem. There are two things that I'm sure of even more today than I might have been a couple of weeks ago. Ron left everything behind. He didn't take any of it with him. Glenn left everything behind. He didn't take any of it with him. It's just stuff. Why wait? I want to conclude with this excerpt from The Character of a Methodist, written by John Wesley. There's a few paragraphs here, but I think it's worth hearing. The distinguishing marks of a Methodist are not his or her opinions of any sort. They're assenting to this or that scheme of religion. They're embracing any particular sort of notions. They're espousing the judgment of one person or another are all quite wide of the point. A Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit give to them. One who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind, and with all their strength. God is the joy of their heart and the desire of their soul, which is constantly crying out, Whom have I upon earth that I desire beside thee, my God and my all? Thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Methodist is therefore happy in God, yes, always happy, as having in them a well of water springing up into everlasting life and overflowing their soul with peace and joy, perfect love, having now cast out all fear. The Methodist rejoices evermore. Having found redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of their sins, the Methodist cannot but rejoice whenever they look back on the horrible pit out of which they are delivered. The Methodists cannot but rejoice whenever they look on the state wherein they are now, 
being justified freely and having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Methodist rejoices also whenever they look forward in hope of the glory that shall be revealed. By these marks, says Wesley, these fruits of living faith, do we labor to distinguish ourselves from the unbelieving world. But from real Christians of whatever denomination they be, we earnestly desire not to be distinguished at all. Not from any who sincerely follow after what they know they have not yet attained. No, whosoever does the will of my Father which is in heaven the same as my brother and sister and mother. Is your heart right as my heart is with you? I ask no further question. If it be, give me your right hand. Do you love and serve God? It is enough. I give you the right hand of fellowship. Let us strive together for the faith of the gospel, walking worthy of the vocation whereby we are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when I told you the first Sunday I was here that I'm kind of a practicing Wesleyan, now you know what I mean. And I hope you'll join me. And if you will, just throw out your right hand and the fellowship of the believers. And let's go together towards all the good that we can do. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Please burn it upon our hearts. Please blow away the chaff and the waste that came from feeble mind. So that the people leave changed permanently by you. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.